Welcome to Veterans AZ, the show that celebrates veterans across the great state of Arizona and highlights their stories and accomplishments. This episode is a conversation with Frank Lambert, a West Point graduate who went on to serve with the 1st Air Cavalry Division in Vietnam. His combat legacy includes a Silver Star, the Soldier's Medal, three Bronze Stars with Valor, an Air Medal, and two Purple Hearts, earned during the Tet Offensive of 1968. In March 2022, Frank was honored with the Veterans Heritage Project's Storyteller Award, which recognizes a veteran's willingness to share their story with others, something Frank Lambert has done many times over the past decade. I'm here with uh, Frank Lambert, Captain, United States Army, and also the recipient of the 2022 Veterans Heritage Project Storyteller Award. Uh, Frank, thank you so much for joining us and oh, being here My pleasure. So um, let's hear more about your story. Um, first of all, let's start way back. Your, your father served in the military for 27 years. Uh, can you tell us more about him and about his influence on your decision to pursue the military as a career? Well, dad was a farmer and he had five sisters and two brothers. And he was the only one that left the farm. He enlisted in the army at age 18. Uh, went into the Medical Service Corps, which kept him out of the combat fighting in World War II, and he ended up in Hawaii. And spent the whole war in Hawaii, where he met my mother. And uh, my brother and I were both born there. And it was interesting because as a farm boy, he had a sense of uh, what's right and wrong. And kind of, I think, always made us choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong, which is ironically what they taught us at West Point. And so uh, he, was, he was always very high standard character kind of guy that I looked up to. And so I just wanted to emulate him. And tell us about your decision then um, to attend West Point. Ironically, uh, I was about to sign a basketball scholarship to San Jose State. And the night before I was to go to San Jose to sign the letter of intent, I got my appointment to West Point. Uh, and what we were worried about is there were no vacancies that year through the senatorial and the congressional representatives. So we had to use the uh, presidential competitive, which you could do if your parents were military. So we had 5,000 apply and 49 of us made it. And so that's how I got in. And so um, you attend West Point, and at that point you're, you're fully enmeshed in the, in the military lifestyle. Uh, was it what you expected? Were you ready for it? Uh, fortunately, I played basketball. And by the way, Bobby Knight was our assistant coach, so a lot of people don't realize that. So that was an interesting experience. But I came from a rural high school in central California, agricultural kind of high school. And the highest math course we had was basic algebra. And when we got to West Point, they started you in calculus. And so uh, every night, uh, about 200 of my classmates and I went to remedial math. So we, uh, it was a bit of a struggle academically. But I think the basketball experience and being a little bit of, a, of an athlete got me through that side of it so I could grind through the academic part of it. And during your time there, I was reading your uh part of your story, uh, General Douglas MacArthur gave his, his famous final farewell speech to the Corps of Cadets. Uh, what do you remember about that? Well, the first interesting thing was, I think it was in 1951, a long time ago, 
when he was fired by President Truman, he was making a tour of the country, and my dad was stationed at Fort Sam Houston, Texas. And I remember going out to the parade ground, and he was being featured in a parade of the troops. So I saw him in 51, and then didn't realize that 12 years later I would be a cadet in the audience. Uh, and the interesting thing is we had uh, leave for New York City that day, and they wouldn't let us leave until after the speech, which Thank goodness they did. Uh, but he wasn't very big. He was, I think, only 5'8 or 5'9. So when he stood on the podium, you could hardly see him. And uh, he had almost kind of a guttural speech technique. But it was, it was probably one of the most impressive things. And I always tell people, if you can go back and listen to it, uh, when he says duty, honor, country, I mean, it just it gets everybody going. And, and certainly must have had a, a very uh, willing audience in West Point. He's a legend. Absolutely. In fact, uh, he passed away, I think, the year later, but uh, a number of us went down to the Waldorf Astoria. He was living in the Waldorf Astoria to celebrate his last birthday. So, yeah, he was linked. In fact, there's a big statue of MacArthur on the campus. So. And so um, you earn your commission. You go on to active duty. Can you tell us about your, your early Army career and, and the sorts of things you did? Well, right after graduation, uh, I went to airborne school. Uh, some people would say, why do you jump out of perfectly good airplanes? But we did. Uh, then we went to ranger school. Uh, then from there, we went. I was assigned to Germany. So I was in Germany for three years. And that's actually where I had my first company command in Germany. So I got a, a flavor of what it was like to be a company commander. Uh, so I was over there until 1967. And so obviously during that time, you're aware of what's happening in Vietnam. Yeah, and actually what was interesting is some of the early, early first people that went to Vietnam were coming back. And I remember a captain who had just come back. And uh, all of a sudden you have somebody who had been in combat. You know, we had no experience with that, and so he was almost a godlike figure, and we were just constantly trying to learn from him. Uh, so that's when the awareness started, and actually kind of volunteered. Um, Frank, your time in Vietnam was really quite remarkable in, in learning about your story, so I'd like to talk through your experiences there. One theme seems to be your willingness to lead from the front. Um, what made you decide that as a company commander, that you really needed to be on the front lines with the troops? So we went on our first patrol, and uh, we got into a little firefight. We got into some small arms fire, and I was, and I don't know why, but all of a sudden I'm up with a point man and trying to figure out what's going on, which is really not the smartest thing in the world because you're supposed to stay back with most of your troops. And the two point men said, sir, what are you doing up here? I didn't realize I was that far forward, and, and they basically used a few four-letter words and drug me back because they want, you know, a company commander shouldn't be up there. But I think uh, the good thing about that, number one, I survived. Number two, I think the troops, rightly or wrongly, respected the willingness for me to do that because we had other instances that, that I had to do things that probably, uh, you know, normally a captain wouldn't do. Um, so that got us off to a good start. So I never had a problem with the troops after that. Well, it really seems to be, I think, an important factor in the, 
in the morale and really the, the courage that your unit consistently seemed to display. Do you, do you think that's the case? Uh, the fact that they, their company commander was right there with them? Well, I would hope so. Um, you know, you have probably a normal curve of competence with officers and some were good and some were bad. And I think you're talking about 18, 19 and 20 year old kids. And so all of a sudden you're asking them to risk their lives. And you know, sometimes I ask them to do things that uh, was tough to ask them to do and they did it. Uh, but th the officer has got to have their confidence or they're not going to do it and then people get hurt. So, you know, you don't know what those intangibles are sometimes that makes it work, but it seemed to work for me. During that time, do you recall, was it, uh, were you making a conscious decision to do that? You said initially you just kind of found yourself up yeah. there. Um, after that, were you making a conscious decision to do it, or did it just become, did it come to you naturally? There was one incident that kind of crystallized that uh, we got into a firefight and we were caught out in a rice paddy. And uh, I got everybody out of the rice paddy except for my radio operator and me, and all of a sudden we're the only ones out there. And we made it back to the trench line, but on the way, because we were ordered to retreat, because we had five killed right away. And as we were going down the trench line, uh, I heard this screaming from a platoon sergeant, don't leave me, don't leave me. And uh, I stuck my head over, because we were getting incoming fire. When I stuck my head over the trench line, and uh, Sergeant Hernandez, one of my platoon sergeants, was shot in the lower body and couldn't move. And he was afraid we were leaving him because he knew that we were moving back to the rear. So I, uh, I yelled out, somebody go get Sergeant Hernandez. Well, here you've got 18 and 19 year old kids. And all of a sudden everybody just tucked their head down like they didn't hear me. And we didn't have a lot of time to waste. So uh, I had a few choice words with the boys and took my webbing off and I said, okay, I'm gonna go get them. And I grabbed two guys and I said, you fire this way and you fire this way. And I'm gonna go out the middle and get Sergeant Hernandez, which I did. And I think after that, you know, I could not do any wrong. I mean, the troops, and when I got out to Sergeant Hernandez, he started flailing. So I actually had to hit him in the jaw and tell him to calm down so I could pull him back in. And I think the troops really respected that and, and we came back okay. And so after that, yeah. I mean, there were some other, other incidences, but that was the first major one. Um, in the spring of 1968, your company was operating north of Way. Uh, during the Tet Offensive, which was one of the most intense periods of the war, one of the largest battles that uh, probably more people know about than, than any of the others. Um, can you tell us more about the, the close combat that, that you and your troops were enduring during that time? Well, this incident I just described was the first battle, uh, we call the T.T. Woods, which I don't think I can describe what T.T. stands for, but uh, turns out there was a regimental headquarters in there, and we actually had a... Uh, battalion of three companies, probably 300 men online going across the rice paddy, which if you can imagine 300 men. And my uh, West Point uh, classmate, Mike Davison, had the right company. And I heard on the radio that they were actually confronting the enemy and had hand-to-hand -hand combat. And nothing was happening at our end. And, as, and it seemed like it started sweeping toward us. And by the time it got to us, we got in to a trench line that we didn't know was there, and that's when they opened up on us. And that's when the whole thing fell apart, and uh, that's when we were told to retreat, and that was where the story came out the, uh, that I just described. 
And then we went back in there a second time a couple of days later. Um, in the meantime, um, we had five of my men were killed and we couldn't get their bodies out. And so uh, there's another story of try, trying to go out and get them one night. Uh, and the platoon leader that was going to do it wasn't setting up the patrol properly, so I took the patrol. But when we got out there, uh, we could see the five men who were killed. They were probably 30 or 40 feet away. And some idiots set up a flare. And these flares uh, were turned the darkness into daylight. And so here we are, and we could see the North Vietnamese sitting up in the foxholes talking to each other. They didn't know we were there. And they were just jabbering away, and we could see them on the other side of the, the bodies. But we couldn't get them out, so we had to wait until we went back in and a few days later and finally got them out. After getting through that, your company was assigned to relieve the Marines at Quezon, uh, which was another very intense action, a yeah. very, another, another well-known battle of the Vietnam War. Uh, and then on into the Aishau Valley, uh, which was a, a combat helicopter assault. Um, there, your company ran into heavy resistance, and you were eventually seriously wounded. Can you tell us about the days leading up to that point? Well, interestingly, uh, the Tet Offensive went on the whole time I had my company, so we had a lot of heavy contact, a lot of casualties. But what the media did in the, in the United States was present this as a victory for the North Vietnamese, which is totally incorrect. And General Giap, who was a commanding general of the North Vietnamese Army, was interviewed years later, and he said he was ready to surrender in the spring of 68, but because of the casualties in the American media, he wanted to continue to persevere. But we didn't know any about, anything about this. The mission we had was to chase the North Vietnamese out of South Vietnam. And uh, I think this was the largest air assault in the military history. We had 400 helicopters. I believe 22 or 23 were shot down. As we were going into our landing, we were receiving uh, anti-aircraft fire. Uh, red tracers were coming on both sides of the helicopter. And every time you saw a red tracer, there were nine other bullets in the, in the chain, so you had 10 bullets coming at you every time you saw a red tracer. And the pilot wouldn't land because the terrain was too steep and there was too much fire. So he dropped us at 10 feet. We had to jump out and then he took off. And uh, once I got everybody on the ground, then our mission was to go up this trail that came out of the Ho Chi Minh Trail and secure it. And so uh, uh, that's eventually what we did. And, and so you ran into pretty heavy enemy resistance right away, is that correct? Well, actually, uh, we moved up the trail, and what was surprising is that w at first we didn't. So we set up the position, and then I sent a uh, platoon out up the road, and they ran into uh, an ambush, but we ran into some enemy up the road. And so I pulled them all back, and now kind of the bottom line was is the enemy knew where we were, and we knew where they were, and the terrain was so steep on both sides of the road, and the jungle was so thick that I felt that I had accomplished my mission was to secure the road and keep the enemy from using it. And then we just settled in and secured the area. And so what happened after that? Yeah, this is a sidebar that a lot of people find interesting is we, our battalion commander got hurt in a vehicle accident at night. So we had a new battalion commander come out, Lieutenant Colonel. And the Lieutenant Colonel battalion commander has four companies like mine. so somewhere on the order of four or five hundred men. 
And this guy had no combat experience, and uh, he had heard that uh, one of my platoons had made contact with the enemy a couple of days earlier. So I confirmed it, and he said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send a patrol out and take out the enemy. And I sat there, and I looked at him, and I said, with all due respect, sir, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because it's suicidal. The terrain is prohibitive. We, the only way to do that is to go up through the jungle and come in behind the enemy, and people are going to get killed. And he wouldn't let up. And finally, uh, he said, Captain Lambert, that's a direct order. Run that patrol tomorrow. So I was in an interesting leadership dilemma because my instinct was to disobey the order. I fully intended to do that. So I knew what would happen if I disobeyed the order. He would relieve me of my command, probably send me back to the States, probably be court-martialed for disobeying a lawful order, and put in jail, and eventually getting a dishonorable discharge. So that went through my mind. But the real more serious issue was that I knew what he would do, is he would just come right back out to the field. I had only one platoon leader, Lieutenant Barber, and he had not been in contact, he, uh, combat yet. He had no experience, and he would direct Lieutenant Barber to run the patrol. And so uh, I watched Lieutenant Barber brief the troops. <coughs> now, these are all 19, 20, 21-year-old kids. Well, they were really good combat troops. I would trust my life with them. But they didn't trust Lieutenant Barber and they were scared to death. So I made the decision to take over the patrol. To do this, uh, I violated another precept of uh, leadership, which for a company commander, you don't go any place without half of your unit. So here I was taking one platoon instead of two because the terrain was too prohibitive. So anyway, we, uh, we started about 8.30, 9 o'clock, and the terrain was so tough that it's only a few hundred meters, and it took us nine hours. And just got, just bushwhacking through the jungle? Bush, and the, the problem was is we were going parallel to the trail because we assumed the enemy was still where he was the day before and we couldn't, if we navigated incorrectly toward the trail, we could reveal ourselves and if we went the other way we'd get lost. And back in those days we had no GPS, it was strictly a compass. And amazingly after nine hours we got, I think, within about 20 feet of our objective. And uh, it was really weird because uh, the point man called me forward and we were whispering because all the animals, birds, there was no noise, deathly quiet. And uh, I was pretty sure we were where we were supposed to be. I looked down on the ground and there was communications wire. Well, I said, the only reason there's communications wire is the enemy has set up a semi-permanent position and there's a lot of enemy in the area but they could have moved out we didn't know so I called Lieutenant Barber over or whispered we were whispering <coughs> and I said uh, you take half the patrol and go to the left of this mound and I'm going to take the other half go through the bomb crater up on the hill and if the trail is on the other side which is I think where is correct We'll secure the trail, and if we run into the enemy, take the enemy out and secure the area. So he said, okay. 
So I always tell everybody, if they've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, because people have said, what's it like in combat? Well, we're about to have the Saving Private Ryan moment in that first 10 minutes of the movie. So as Lieutenant Barber moved out, an arm came out with a pistol and shot him in the head and killed him. Turns out we were on the back side of the enemy position and we didn't know it. Immediately, fire came down on us. It seemed like from every direction. Men were dropping, people were being shot. I looked up in the air and there were grenades. The sky was filled with grenades. Apparently the enemy was just throwing grenades over the back of the bunker. So I, I just said, I screamed, follow me, which nobody heard, I'm sure. So I took off through the bomb crater. And as I came out of the bomb crater on the other side, I must have been running right at a rifleman, enemy rifleman. Thank God he was slow on the trigger because he should have hit me in the head or the chest and he hit me in the right leg, uh, knocked me down. So I'm crawling away trying to find cover and bullets are flying all over the place. <coughs> and then my world erupted. And to this day, some people said a grenade hit me. Other people said he shot me again. But my whole backside, both buttocks were shredded and I'm bleeding all over the place. And I'm barely conscious and my medic comes up and gives me a shot of morphine. And just as he pulled the needle out, he disappeared and I looked over my shoulder and apparently that same rifleman had shot him in the hip and he was up against the log, fully exposed. I don't know why he wasn't shot again, screaming and yelling. And then I must have passed out because the next thing I remember, absolutely quiet. Pitch black, you couldn't see a hand in front of your face. All you could hear was your heart beating. And we were in trouble. Everybody had been pulled back into a tight perimeter. Still had no idea what the casualty situation was. And all of a sudden down the trail, we heard this grenade go off and some pistol fire and some screaming and yelling. Had no idea what was that about. And I must have gone in and out of consciousness because I kind of lost track of time. But over the time, this happened again and again. And each time it got closer. And what we were worried about was, was the enemy coming up the trail and killing my men that got caught on the trail, or, please God, troops from the rear coming up to rescue us. Had no idea. Finally, the last time a grenade went off, we had some pistol fire. It seemed like it was 20 or 30 feet away. And we all got our weapons ready for an attack. We thought we were going to be attacked. And uh, turned out to be my executive officer, Mike Sprayberry, leading volunteers to come up. And he popped it. I don't know how we didn't shoot him, because he got right up to us and uh, said, you guys OK? And uh, so that started the uh, moving everybody back to the rear. And so at that point, the, the enemy pulled back and, and you were <coughs> able to be extracted? I was watching the news and President Nixon is presenting a Medal of Honor. That's when I learned the details and what it turns out to be is Mike Sprayberry, my executive officer, killed 12 of the enemy and he was crawling up to the spider holes in the bunkers, threw a grenade in and killed 12 of the enemy to get to us. And apparently in the process, the enemy must have backed away 
because he was able to bring up some volunteers and move us all back to the rear where we were. We couldn't get out that night because of the terrain and the darkness. So they got us out the next morning. So, but uh, I think that's what happened. And it's really an incredible story. Um, do you know of your 20 or so troops who were on that particular mission, uh, what the casualties were? Obviously you were seriously wounded. Yeah, when I uh, heard the citation, I realized that we had 11 of us were wounded and four were killed. And the really uh, sad thing about all of this is uh, three of the men's bodies were never recovered. Uh, they were 21, 20 years of age. And Mike went back a couple years later, or 20 years later, to try to recover the bodies. We've never been able to find them. It's an ongoing attempt to find them. Uh, and so uh, that's the worst thing about all of this. Uh, and I never got to see the battalion commander again, so I often wondered what his response would have been. And so that was the end of your time in, in Vietnam? Yeah. And where did you go from there? We were evacuated to Fort Dix Hospital in New Jersey. And all of us in my group were wounded in the lower body, so we were litter patients. And so when they got us to the airport, we had about a 15-minute ride to the hospital. And uh, so we're all litter patients on the, in the bus, stacked up three and four high. And we're giddy like little kids because here we were alive. We were back in the U.S. Thank God, most of us thought we were going to be killed two weeks earlier. And as we, and so we're high-fiving and everything. And as the bus is going to the hospital, all of a sudden we hear this thumping on the bus. So we sit up in our litters, and unbelievably, 10 o'clock at night, there were American protesters throwing rocks at us, screaming baby killers. And they had big signs out there, baby killers. And we were just taken aback. Couldn't believe it. Anyway, that was our first reception coming back to the country. Uh, from there, I was stationed at Fort Knox, Kentucky, glad to get back in the military environment. And then from there, I was at uh, University of Illinois. I went to graduate school, and that's where I learned about the Medal of Honor presentation. It's also where we had another uh, experience where all the professors one day refused to teach us. They were boycotting all classes that had military students in them and wouldn't come to class. And so the Pentagon was funding our graduates schooling at Illinois and finally got the administration to force the professors to teach the class. So that was my second experience with, uh, with the way people were thinking. And actually by then, had another business experience, uh, I just stopped talking about this whole thing. And uh, just went underground basically and didn't tell my story for about 30 years. After uh, Illinois, I was stationed at West Point in the admissions office for three years to recruit kids from high school to go to West Point. And then from there, uh, I was due to take over a general's aides job in Korea. I was all ready to go. And a major from the Pentagon came up to do an exit interview. And I just said, you know, with my combat record, uh, kind of interested why I haven't been promoted to major yet. And he was pretty caustic. He said, you know, Captain, we've got too many captains. Why don't you just get out? So I did. Walked across the street, put my resignation in. 
And that was a real tough decision. But anyway, that was the end of my career. Do you, uh, do you think back on it? Are there any regrets at that point? That's a pretty sudden yeah. way to end a, a very intense career. Well, I, I love the military, you know, growing up in the military. And in fact, to this day, we had 555 of us graduate from West Point, and I can grab my phone and email a bunch of them right now today. Every day, we have a golf group, we have a political forum group, so we're in constant touch with each other. So the camaraderie was indescribable. And I n never experienced that in the civilian world. Um, but I think... Uh, the reality was, and it turned out to be the case, that it became a peacetime army. And we were so almost trained to be aggressive in trying to do well and take risk and get promoted and advance in our career. And a lot of that was going to be hitting a, a wall because we had too many officers. So in a way, I regretted not being able to stay in the career. It, you know, the civilian turned out okay. Yeah. You are being honored by the Veterans Heritage Project with the Storyteller Award. And you talked about a long period of your life when you didn't want to tell your story based on the really terrible things that, that you and our other returning Vietnam veterans were enduring uh, during that period in our history. Um, at what point did you decide the environment was, was ready to hear your story? Or how did that decision come about? Well, actually, uh um, I didn't make any decision to do that. Uh, Barbara Hatch called me for an interview. Uh, she's the founder of Veterans Heritage Project. She called me for an interview, and uh, I thought it was just a high school project, and they were just going to come out and do the project, or do the interview. And uh, she brought out Ashley Durham, which is a young 17-year-old. And over the course of the interview, I was still a little reluctant to do it, but I saw how intense and serious Barbara and Ashley were and how respectful they were, which was kind of unusual, you know, because I had not experienced that. And by the end of the interview, I was feeling really good about telling my story. And then over the subsequent three or four months when we did the editing process on the interview, and then they had the reception, and again, I went to the reception, had no idea what to expect. And here we had like 400 people there. And all the veterans who had been interviewed for the book that was published each year uh, were there. And afterwards, we all sat on tables. And people came up and wanted us to autograph our interview. They bought the book, and we autographed our interview. And as uh, we were going home with my wife, I said to Judy, I said, this is a real cathartic experience and totally unexpected. And uh, I kind of exposed myself to Barbara Hatch about willing to, to continue participating. And so we've continued to participate. <laughs> and what's that experience been like? Have you been uh, surprised by the way young, young people are, are open to hearing your story? Yeah, it's been a very uh, interesting experience. I think the parts of the Her Veterans Heritage Project is the teachers the student and the veteran. And the first thing is I've had a chance to meet a lot of veterans. And the, the one thing I've heard over and over again, myself included, is the veterans don't tell their story. And the book that the interviews are in is entitled Since You Asked. 
So I tell everybody now, my mantra is, well, maybe you should ask the veteran to tell this story. And apparently, something like 25% of the veterans who are interviewed have never told their story before. And I know nobody ever asked me. And so I think it's very revealing and a, a, a great experience for the veteran to be able to go back and I say rejuvenate your patriotic juices and feel good about your service and feel good about your country. Um, but also, I think for the student, here you have the students will interview two or three veterans a year, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, whatever. And so all of a sudden they're experiencing living history that they might never ever hear before. And they go home and talk to their families. And so over the course of the time that they're with the program, they put together, compiled uh, interviews of some pretty interesting experiences. Now this isn't part of the mantra or the charter for veteran heritage, but I tell Barbara, I said, what you're creating is you're creating a generation of young people who may never go into the military, but over the time of their business career, will probably have some exposure to military people or the military. It might be even in business where they have to be involved with contracting and so forth. So they're gonna have this layer of experience that a lot of people never have that they'll fall back on. And so I think that this is, and maybe even a layer of patriotism and support for our country that might not otherwise exist, that is kind of a side benefit of the program. Then of course you have the teachers, and many of them again have had no military experience, and so not only are they being exposed to it, but that they're helping the students develop editing skills, interview skills, listening skills, communication skills, and so it, it seems like a real good package for all parties to come together. Well, it really is incredibly important for, for veterans of all ages uh, to share their experiences, and I, I know that can be very difficult because a lot of those experiences are you know, involve losing your comrades and, and, and the still incredible to me way that you all were treated when you came back from Vietnam. So I just really want to thank you for being here with us today and, and for telling your story through the Veterans Heritage Project and, and everywhere else you do it. Uh, my pleasure. I just, I love the opportunity to share my story and I really appreciate the chance to do it. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much for joining us and uh, I look forward to seeing you at the gala. What a remarkable story. We thank Frank Lambert for his brave service to our nation and for informing and inspiring a new generation of Americans by sharing his incredible story. If you would like to support veteran storytellers like Frank Lambert, support the Veterans Heritage Project. This nonprofit organization was founded right here in Arizona. VHP connects students with veterans to honor military service, preserve the veterans' stories, and develop students' understanding and appreciation for those who serve in uniform. Learn more at veteransheritage.org. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey has launched a plan to double the number of veterans in the state workforce. AZ Hires Vets is a multi-year, multi-agency initiative that aims to increase the percentage of veterans working for the state of Arizona from 8.5% to 15% by 2025. If you are a veteran looking for work or a new career, visit azstatejobs.gov and look for the Veteran Employment section. Thank you for watching or listening to Veterans AZ. 
If you enjoyed it, share it with friends and family. You can find past episodes and other veterans resources and information at veteransaz.org.